and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we come to you from the historic Bank of Scotland building in the city of Edinburgh. With history dating to the end of the 17th century, now housing the UK's largest retail and commercial bank, this building represents the bridge between the old and the new, and so a fitting venue for a conversation on the emerging role of finance in the energy transition. Scotland is a major player in European energy markets, originating in its extraction of oil from the North Sea in the 1980s, and more recently with its commitment to renewable energy, which has resulted in over 97% of the country's electricity coming from renewable sources. Scotland is also a net exporter of electricity, in 2020 generating 31.8 terawatt hours of renewables, three and a half times more power than was consumed by all the households in the country. Edinburgh is the financial capital of Scotland, and so we're speaking to a key player in the space where banking and energy meet. Tara Smith is the head of Climate and Sustainability Strategy, Sustainability and ESG for Lloyds Banking Group. An engineer by background, starting her career as a petroleum engineer, Tara transitioned into sustainability consulting with Accenture before moving to Wood Mackenzie, ERM and Wood Group. Tara gave a fascinating deep dive into multiple areas of the world of sustainability and ESG, including making the transition from oil to banking, the role of finance in the path to net zero, how global frameworks influence the banking sector in the energy transition, a global perspective from Scotland, Saudi Arabia, and the role of the COPs. Tara is an engaging and knowledgeable speaker with a rare level of insight into the key risks and opportunities that are emerging from the energy transition and climate change. It's a conversation that you just won't want to miss. Tara, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, it's you. great Thank to you. see you again. Yeah, yes. no, it's been too long. It's been too yeah. long. So, if we could just start about a little bit about your own background. Uh, you were originally an engineer, um, in, right. and starting mm-hmm. out in a world, as, I know certainly when I was um, in college, um, in my, my peer group in engineering school, uh, there's about 150 people, I think about three were women. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, very, likewise yeah. at my university. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, what, what first attracted you to, to, to the energy sector, and then to go into, like, initially, petroleum engineering? Yeah, well... The whole world is dependent on energy in some shape or form, from you know being able to keep medicines cool in Africa to the importance of lighting um, and being able to, to read and function um, to the politics you know around the planet when we think about energy security, um, but also in the ability to you know mobilize to um, you know transportation. Really, everything can come down to dependency on energy, and I was always very fascinated in that as well as really thinking about the environmental impacts around the energy industry. Okay. And then you, um, after a number of years working for, for oil majors, you transitioned into sustainability. Uh, how, can you tell us a little bit how, that, how all that happened? Yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't say I ever transitioned into sustainability. I think my whole career has actually been around sustainability. So some may be surprised, you know, sustainability is such a big word for us now and ESG perhaps will come to you a little bit later as well. Uh, But I I grew up in Texas and um, back when I went to university, I wanted to do environmental engineering. They didn't even have an environmental engineering program when when I went to university, I can't believe 30 years ago um, now, but but 30 years ago. Um, And so I went into chemical engineering and then, you know, you could specialize in environmental sciences. And next thing you know, I was looking at carbon capture technologies even before I joined the oil and gas industry. And you know, there's a variety of technologies we think about you know, on, on that journey, but um, even in the oil and gas industry, I worked for BP and its first approach to beyond petroleum. Um, and then also with Shell, with um, looking at local workforce development, which is another key aspect of sustainability. And then I decided I wanted to jump full in um, to really being able to, to do much more on sustainability. But it's always been um, something that I've sought out and wanted, you know, either in a big company or, or in smaller companies or where I can make a difference is to focus on sustainability. So that's the move from the from from industry, the kind of oil and gas majors. Then you went into consultancy. That's right. And spent spent many many years at you know Woodmac and Woods and yeah. What did you? What are your kind of major kind of learnings from the world of consultancy? That that kind of that that difference, the transition that you made there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, my first part of my career was in engineering, 
and you know, engineers, you're always looking to, to tackle you know, problems and look for the solutions. And you find a lot of engineers then tend to, to go into consulting and because consultants tend to be problem solvers and being able to, to really map out frameworks and different ways of thinking and you know, strategic planning. So after going to London Business School and you know, six years of working for BP and Shell, then I moved into Accenture and working in management consulting on sustainability and corporate transformation strategies around sustainability. And then on to consulting a bit more in Wood Mackenzie, I think as you mentioned, where I headed global energy trends research there for, uh, I guess, about eight years. And now into uh, banking and finance, uh, so what, year and a half into, into the position here? Yeah, what have you found, what was your, your biggest biggest surprise from uh, moving from, from consultancy into finance? Yeah, well, you know, actually, I, I've moved around a bit, always focused on sustainability. So last couple of things I did, I was a partner at ERM, an independent sustainability consultancy, where we worked on the technical guidelines for the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. And that's where I first started working in finance, actually, and, and with Lloyd's Banking Group at the time, where I basically assessed climate change across their entire lending book and I realized just how important finance the role it can play in sustainability um, and when the opportunity came you know um, to actually join the new sustainability and ESG finance team in Lloyd's I jumped for the opportunity and I, I really enjoy working in banking because I see it as kind of the tip of the spear of being able to really use finance as a force for good yeah, very good. So this is so it's this is a new position that's just been set up uh, recently. Yeah. 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 So we launched our team last year at, at Lloyd's, the Sustainability and ESG Finance team. There's around 22 of us. Um, so it's a center of excellence for the corporate and inst institutional bank. Um, but we're we're basically bankers, but we're also a number of different disciplines. Um, so engineers, management consultants, accountants, strategists. Um, really looking at how can we play a key role around net zero financing. And the bank did that. Um, so the bank was a, net, um, was a founding member of the Net Zero Banking Alliance, where they set a target for net zero by 2050 or sooner and to reduce their finance emissions by 50% by 2030. But to do that, you know, you could draw a line and say, we're just going to stop investing in some areas. Um, but that's not what we want to do. We want to drive real economy impact. And that's the reason we established this team, is to be able to lean in more with our clients and supporting them on their transition journeys. Great. Um, so you, you had this team, a multidisciplinary team. And who would you spend your, your average kind of week speaking to? Would it be government, would it be companies, would it be internal uh, stakeholders? All of the above. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. I mean, a lot of it is with our clients and understanding their needs to be able to establish, you know, credible transition plans. But then also, you know, there's a key role to play between business, finance, and government. So making sure, you know, are the policies clear? Can we think about, you know, revenue support mechanisms for new types of technologies? So really engaging government, engaging our clients, and of course internally as we look to increase our targets around reducing financed emissions as well. Well, you have. Um you mentioned like, your, your MBA. Um, it, you you graduated at around the same time of the financial crisis, and yes, it was interesting times for, for us all. Very challenging. And um, just wondering now, in this experience of this financial world that you're in, um, are there any kind of parallels being drawn between the financial crisis and the you know the impending climate emergency that's, hap that's happening? Um, are there lessons that that, are, that have been learnt from? Um, previous times and um, reactions that are being put in place now, for example, with the starting yeah, up of your team? Ab yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, not long after the, the financial crisis, um, we started thinking a lot more about climate change also as the cost of doing nothing. And, you know, I think that there's been more and more scientific evidence that climate change creates, you know, real systemic risks to, you know, to finance. And more and more science around that in terms of the cost if we don't go ahead and, and change and look at adaptation, but also the mitigation of climate change and getting to net zero. And so I think the parallels, you know, when we think about the financial crisis, is looking at those risks well ahead and recognizing that we need to be able to appropriately assess them and think about the risk management um, around climate change um, and also the opportunities it potentially presents as well. And certainly we see that within the bank. Well, uh, part of your job title is um, includes ESG, the, the idea, the idea concept of ESG and your responsibility for, for ESG. Uh, before we get too deep 
deep into the E, uh, the environmental side of it. Um, could you give us uh, your, your thoughts on the society and governance part of part of the SG? How it all interacts together? You know, should it, should they be independent? Should they all be intertwined? Enormous topic, I know, but please. <laughs> well, it's fundamentally interdependent the environmental, the social, and the governance. And a lot of times, I mean, so we were talking a bit about, you know, climate in particular today, but climate isn't just about the environment. Climate change is also about society. And that's very clear on what's happening right now when we think about energy security sitting here in the UK and we think about net zero is the affordability of the technologies to get us to net zero, thinking about the opportunity for green jobs, regional redevelopment um, coming out uh, you know, or leveling up, I think as the UK government used to call it, um, in terms of looking at what the net zero transition could present. Um, but even if we look further afield as well, I, I started my career um, working in Borneo in Malaysia. I, think you, I don't know if you remember from some of our past history, but you know, it became very clear to me then just how interdependent the E is with the S. Because I, I was sitting in Borneo seeing you know, this tragic deforestation going on in, in, in Borneo. And it's quite easy to say, well, let's just stop the deforestation. But what becomes very clear is how do you create opportunities you know, for income you know, and, and, and being able to, you know, some of the, the poorest in society to, to be able to make sure that there's jobs, there's you know, um, income to be able to feed their families and so on. So there's very much an interdependency there. Um, that we see here in the UK, but also internationally. And likewise on governance, I mean, greenwashing has become very much front and center around greenwashing and how important it is to make sure that we tackle greenwashing and that we really are addressing the broader holistic view on sustainability, the E and the S, and we're doing it in a very appropriate way in tackling greenwashing and thinking about you know, the, the fundamental impacts to our economy to make sure that we can get to net zero. Yeah, I think for for run or for wrong, um, the E has been very much wrapped up in um, in the amount of carbon you emit, and that's something that's has the benefits of being very measurable, very easily measurable, and anyone and can see it and you can account it. Yeah, how do you measure the S and the G? And uh, yeah, just as a kind of as a kind of follow on thought from that, like for example, in the G, the government side. Yeah. Um, where we in the UK here, um, there isn't a great history of having employee representation on the board. Yeah. Uh, so that wouldn't be a, a, a G box that needs to be ticked. But in Germany, it's quite the opposite. They're, they're much, much more into having empl employees on the board. So that would be a box to tick there. How do you measure governance? How do you measure, measure the, the, the society part of it, the social part of it, um, in in the similar way that carbon can be can be quite easily measured. Too. Exactly, and mm. that's the real challenge around social is being able to do that. Is you know, and I think governance. There's certain aspects. I mean, they've been spelled out by TCFD, and we'll see more coming out with credible transition plans. So here in the UK, you know, we're basically looking at mandatory sustainability disclosure requirements. But you know, coming sometime, uh, hopefully next year, we'll see with the the new government how that particularly plays out. But certainly that was announced at COP26 last year, and we expect to see more. Right now, we have the transition plan task force underway that's really looking at credible transition plans that will feed in you know, to those reporting requirements. And that includes not just looking at the environmental aspects, but looking at a just transition um, and, and being able to incorporate uh, you know, the, a just transition framework around looking at the social aspects alongside the E. So certainly we're looking a lot at, at a number of frameworks to be able to assess it, but it's no easy solution. Um, and it's, it's very much when you look at the social aspects as being able to also look at the local levels. So we've also launched here at the bank a regional re, um, development team is really looking at the regional impacts and being able to look at the, the jobs impact, you know, look at the economic impacts alongside the environmental ones. I understand what, uh, what environmental financing looks like, but what does social financing look like? What does governance financing look like? Yeah, well, we typically, with sustainability-linked lending, so I don't know how, you know, maybe to just explain what sustainability-linked lending is. So it's really um, working with your clients, looking, one, do they have a robust and ambitious sustainability strategy? And then looking at a series of KPIs and sustainability performance targets um, aligned with their strategy that they may be targeting over the next five years. We typically look at, um, one, what is most material for the client, um, but looking through the lens not just of 
environments, so typically carbon or some aspect of climate mitigation is included in there. But then really looking at something that would be very material from a social perspective. Um, and these sustainability-linked lending um, you know, facilities also provide discounted financing to our corporate clients and being able to achieve those targets. On the social side, that could be anything from, you know, um, anything from diversity and inclusion um, and, and looking at the workforce to more around just transition, which may be more around training opportunities for looking at new lower carbon technologies like renewables, uh, for instance, as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So you have a a different like a, a fund, a particular kind of pool of money that is lower cost that is that is is dedicated towards you know environmental, socially responsible investment. And um, how can the bank internally justify that? Is that a it's it, it's a lower risk because it, it thinks about these things? Is that like well, what's what's the logic? Uh, what's what's the because obviously you're a bank. There has to be business logic to it. Well, not always. So we look a lot at sustainability-linked lending, but we also look at a number. In fact, we're looking at 85 different net zero technologies to decarbonize the UK economy. Some of those technologies, we're having to think you know, very innovatively of how we de-risk those technologies and leaning in more with government you know, or, or thinking about blended financing opportunities as well through infrastructure banking and so on. So it's not always about it's less risk. We are a founding member of the Net Zero Banking Alliance and we are aiming to reduce our own financed emissions by 50%. So we want to lean in with our clients and provide those incentives um, to help also reduce our own financed emissions. But in leaning in with them, you know, we have as a core purpose at the bank is to help Britain prosper. So really trying to think more about how we can see the economy thrive and support our clients on their, their own journeys you know, towards that. I imagine that's quite rare, though, in the world of banking. Is, yeah. is that fair to say? Well, you know, I, I'm not a banker by background, um, but I think what excited me about getting into finance was really that, you know, finance, you know, there's, a, there's enough capital there that you could, you know, what do you want to invest in? And I think what you're seeing more and more in the financial sector is this recognition, as we were saying, around the cost of doing nothing. And, and wanting to lean much more into the world that we want um, and seeing the, the opportunities that that potentially presents. So I, I see, you know, and that's the reason I joined finance, that more and more finance can be the tip of the spear to really enabling, you know, the net zero transition. Okay, yeah, I guess that kind of leads into um, a kind of broader discussion on um, the, the polarization of the mm -hmm. idea of, of, of ESG. It seems to be another political football that's being booted around your home country and, and, yes. and, 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 and yes. other parts of the world. Um, we're now in a world where um, there's going to be significantly additional pressure on bottom lines, some top lines, bottom lines. Uh, we have higher inflation, more, more difficult, difficult economic times. Um, do you see ESG as being embedded in, 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 in systems like, you know, in the bank or in your clients? Or in a worst case scenario, could it just be seen as, as the marketing budget, which is the first thing, first thing that gets kind of, you know, slashed in a, in a difficult time? No, I, I see that it's very much getting embedded. But I think to your point around, you know, some of the political outplays that we're seeing around ESG, I mean, ESG is not perfect. Um, it, it is on its own journey. There's a lot of things around data analytics, being able to assess impact. Like we talked about, you know, social um, is very challenging, needless to say, even environmental. You know, there are still a lot of things around scope three emissions that we're trying to tackle. So ESG is definitely on a journey. But I think it, it's a positive journey that we're seeing and that it's continually being embedded into the financial sector, uh, both in you know, investment banking, commercial banking. We're continuing to see through you know, private equity, um, you know, into venture capital, angel investing. It's, it's a very exciting space, uh, but there's certainly a, a, you know, a long way to go on that and challenges ahead that we will need to address to ensure that we're having a positive impact. And part of that, um, uh, Lloyd's made, um, you know, just before COVID, uh, very ambitious um, statements about, you know, carbon costs of lending, uh, which, and and also in uh, green mortgages. What do you mean by that? By like low carbon lending and also uh, by green mortgages, and how can the progress is is going on? Yeah. So. Um Within lending, we've got a few aspects that we cover within corporate banking to, to support that. So one, we have a clean growth finance initiative, which is basically looking at um, lending that could align to, for instance, you know, the, the green taxonomy. 
So where we see real green projects that we can provide discounted financing to. So for instance, you know, EV charging infrastructure would, would be one, um, you know, or green hydrogen projects would, would be another example as well as renewables we've been in for some time as you're probably very well aware of, Chris, um, in the wind and the solar sector. And then we've got sustainability linked lending, as I mentioned before. So that's really then with the corporates and looking at their transition strategies, ensuring their very ambitious sustainability strategies and being able to basically provide discounted financing where our corporate clients can achieve the sustainability targets. The exciting thing about Lloyd's is, you know, we cover corporates, um, corporates, project developers, and then also into re retail banking, which means that we're looking also at consumers, which is quite helpful when you think about the net zero transition, right? And so on the retail banking side, we're also thinking about how can we incentivize consumers to think much more sustainability. So through green mortgages, um, where you know homeowners are thinking about you know energy efficiency measures, you know retrofitting, um, you know or, or heat pumps, you know for instance, uh, all the way into electric vehicles as well. So we do a lot through Lex, which is one of we have the largest commercial fleet for EVs. Is really then being able to support consumers also with you know, technologies like electric vehicles. So we're looking across that whole value chain from corporates to consumers. And any any other kind of interesting, cool things that you're, you're, you're rolling out across the bank now? Yeah, well, I, net zero origination, we call it. We're basically looking at 85 different technologies across the UK economy. So my job is basically looking at every sector across the UK economy, where basically we've got a year and a half long program. We're looking at all the technologies that could basically get us to net zero. Because we talk a lot about what we should stop doing, but I think we have to start talking more about what we need to do more of. And you know, as we were chatting you know, earlier, it's, you know, it's fantastic to see the growth in renewables. And if only renewables could get us to net zero, that'd be brilliant, because we've, we've seen you know, the cost curves come down tremendously for renewables you know, and, the, and the cost savings around that. But we need much more than renewables to get us to net zero, because that decarbonizes the power sector. But we need to be thinking about the electrification of transport, the electrification of heat, um, to be able to get us to net zero. And that's one thing I'm really excited about at the bank is being able to look at all those technologies and how we can lean in to get some of those commercially viable technologies upscaled as quickly as possible. And so does that mean you've got a, a little kind of venture fund that you, you, you help them out with or is just is it lending? Well, we're trying to think differently. So, you know, for I guess, you know, people that may not be as familiar with commercial banking, you know, we tend to to focus on you know, commercially viable, mature technologies. And you may have seen from the UK's net zero strategy is being reworked now, but you know, really thinking through that kind of financial ecosystem from thinking about angel investing, venture capital, so some of these really new exciting technologies, um, and then moving into things like private equity. And then you know, tail end is really around commercial banking. And what we've been working on is trying to bring in you know, where we can upscale some of these technologies sooner. So really thinking about our credit and risk framework um, and creating a new portfolio um, that will really help to, to lend into some of the earlier technologies to help upscale them. So for a commercial bank, um, you know, I think someone setting an angel investing, you know, they'll probably be more on that front end. But from a commercial bank, with the kind of capital that we have available in the, in the debt markets, um, is being able to come in sooner to, to be able to, to support the upscaling. That must have that must involve quite a lot of reskilling, retooling, and getting a new 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 people who can actually assess these technologies. So have you have you you gone through that as well? Yeah. So um, over the last year, we've invested a lot into the ESG finance team in which I sit. So I think I was saying, you know, a lot of us were engineers, strategists, management consultants. We have individuals in, you know, that have prior government experience when we think about the government government support mechanisms. Um, and then also within our credit and risk team, we've built out a new ESG risk team to also look at these technologies. So there's a lot of areas where we're really looking at capacity and capability uplift. We've also worked with the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership, so CISL, which has run a training program across our frontline bankers to get them um, you know, more upskilled and able to lean in with our clients on sustainability. And we'll be launching, watch this space, a new program shortly on the 
climate technologies, so really looking at the net zero technologies in much more depth where we can lean in with our clients, not only around transactions, but also financial advisory. So as they're thinking, well, you know, hydrogen, there's a lot of uncertainties, for instance, on the hydrogen economy, not just on supply, but the demand vectors. How do we get our bankers equipped to be able to think about how we de-risk these technologies? So there's a lot of work going on right now to make sure that we've got the right skills in place. So yeah, well, full, massive kudos to, 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 to yourself and Lloyds for having taken these initiatives. I'm very pleasantly surprised that uh, being so innovative and progressive in all these areas, it's, it's fantastic work. I'm delighted, it's delighted to hear it. Moving to your to your clients, you obviously you speak to an awful lot of people and love love little different sectors. Um, how do you feel your clients see the energy transition as a as a massive opportunity, massive threats, both? Both, yeah. So it's a bit of both, Chris. Um, so it just it depends, you know. So we cover every sector, and you know there will be some sectors, you know, like like your own, you know, renewables has massive opportunities, and other sectors that are much more carbon intensive that are having to think very differently about their business models. But that doesn't mean that you know within the carbon intensive sector, you know, it's presenting the threats and the cost of doing nothing, but also the opportunities of what diversification, decarbonization, transitioning their business models could present as well. So it really depends on the client, but typically it's a bit of the threat and the opportunity that you need to consider. Mm. Yeah, I think the answer in a financing frame is kind of obvious, uh, but maybe if I'll ask the question more of your kind of historic consultancy frame, uh, what's the most uh, powerful tool if you go on in and you speak to speak to you know an executive boards um, in making the case for for for, for taking transformative steps in Do relation you know, to SG? I I think it is um, you know so I've worked a lot on TCFD the task force on climate related financial disclosures since um, when I was a consultant we worked on the technical guidelines and the toughest part of TCFD I think is also the most powerful in scenario analysis as long as you keep it really simple it's the what if. And when you go to speak with an executive board and you say, what if, that's fine. You can keep going on the pathway, the path that you're going because you think you know, the transition is expensive and it will be expensive. Perhaps we'll come to that a bit later. It, it will be expensive. But when you say you can continue on the path you're on, let's talk about the what if. The lights start going off. And when you can have that conversation with a board where you've got sustainability talking through the lens of finance, you're able to talk a language that the board can really understand and bring sustainability to life. And that definitely makes a difference. And then you can move on to the what if, if we did change, what are the opportunities that could potentially present? And that I think has been a game changer in what we've seen from TCFD. And part of the reason we haven't really talked much about nature, which I also think is very exciting, is why we see TNFD, the task force on nature related financial disclosures, trying to use a similar framework to a certain extent, obviously there's a, a caveat to that, nature's even more, you know, um, there's more intricacies there to consider, but being able to look at the what if and the financial opportunities and using that lens for sustainability, I think has been a game changer. So what, what do you see the future for your, your role, your position? Like, so let's say in 10 years, if it's you or, or, or your, your, your successor, what will the environments be, the working environments, what, what differences will there be? I'm hoping in 10 years that um, I'll be on to a new job because I hope that what we've been doing on climate and sustainability strategy becomes business as usual. So right now, you know, we are a center of excellence within Lloyd's Banking Group, but we're working a lot with our sector coverage teams and the front line. So this all becomes completely ingrained across the bank and that will put me out of a job, but I'd be quite happy with that. But I think there will probably be other sustainability topics that you know, we'll continue to have to work on in the, the coming years and thinking about you know, impact investing, thinking about nature, natural capital. You know, there, there are a lot of things, the SDGs, there's still so much work to be done on the sustainable development goals. But I, I'm hoping uh, I'll be on to a new job because it'll be so ingrained in the bank. I think we we covered it slightly in the in previous um, previous answers, but uh, what's your view on climate as being a systemic risk? I was thinking about kind of the types of things that Mark Carney has been saying recently about uh, you know potentially 
being massively destructive towards the financial industry, causing mass bankruptcies um, all, all over the place. Are you on board with that? Or do you, do you think, oh, he's gone too far? Or I think there's a balance to be made. And, uh, you know, I, I think Mark Carney has gone through a number of different approaches. And I think sometimes, in the, you know, I, I take that with engaging clients, is sometimes you need to approach with the opportunity, and I think as Mark Carney has called it, what is it, 50 shades of green? <laughs> you know, so how do you, how do you get people on that journey? But then we need to move much faster. And I almost think sometimes, you know, and I, I learned this from strategy, um, you know, strategy, you find some people, when they think about change, they're walkers, or they're joggers, or they're flat out runners. And it's, you know, who are you engaging with that you need to get onto that pathway? And sometimes you need to start with one approach, to get them on board and, and walking? And then how do you get them running? And I, I think Mark Carney has done that, you know, very well. He hasn't, you know, he's had a few stumbles himself, um, but I, I think he is, you know, I, I commend him for the work that he's been doing and being able to get people on that journey. So, but do you see uh, climate as being a systemic risk to the financial system? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is a systemic risk and we need to be able to address it. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of analytics that have, have come into play to enable that, to be able to assess that. There's a lot that we're seeing now around um, CBES, you know, so stress testing of central banks to be able to really account, you know, and, and address what is the climate risk and being able to, to start to mitigate that. But, you know, clearly there's a lot more work to be done. I think the most exciting thing I've seen, though, is the Glasgow Financial you know, Alliance for Net Zero, which Mark Carney has been heavily involved in, as well as Michael Bloomberg, and um, where we see, you know, over 130 trillion, you know, uh, dollars in assets under management or representative assets across the financial sector that are being deployed to think about net zero. But we still need to work much more on the plumbing in order to address that systemic risk. Uh, you've worked quite a lot in the past, you mentioned, mentioned already, um, the, the external frameworks uh, so thinking particularly of the task force and climate related financial disclosure um, transition pathway initiative and the principles for responsible investment. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the role that you see these types of frameworks having? Yeah, absolutely. I think clients come and say, well, what can I do? You know, what, what kind of frameworks can I start to assess? how well I'm doing, am I a walker or a runner, I think as I was saying earlier, um, you know, and, and what do I need to do to be best in class? And I think the Transition Pathway Initiative is very helpful for carbon intensive, you know, infrastructure, you know, um, clients. Um, then you've got also the TCFD, I think comes into play to think much more about the what ifs and it, you know, what do I need to address? So I, I think both of those frameworks are very useful. So you've got the principles on responsible investment, which leans on TCFD and other frameworks. But on the one hand, it gives companies, whatever sector they're in, there's the principles on responsible banking as well, um, but really gives companies a framework to assess their own journeys but also within finance gives us an opportunity to start to compare and contrast best in class and where we can work with clients to get them more you know where where they need to be yeah and how do you um audit that how do you how do you like if somebody says oh i, I, I have this badge you know I, I comply how do you understand whether they have or not is yeah. that is that an internal function or do you rely on on consultants both. Um, so, you know, we will work with the client to understand where they sit, but we also use a lot of external benchmarks. So you may have seen from GFANS um, recently, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, that we're starting to look much more at credible transition plans and how do we assess that. And that really entails a number of external frameworks like TCFD, the science-based target initiative as well. So science-based targets, both for climate, and I think we'll see more coming out on nature and water um, shortly. But being able to use those kinds of external frameworks to, to be able to benchmark um, and, and being very transparent with companies on where they are, but also being able to delve into much more, more detail around what do they need to do next. And that's where I think the bank, we come in and thinking about sustainable linked lending is being able to say, well, what's your sustainability strategy to improve and how can we work with you on that to, to set those targets? Yeah, there's still voluntary targets, though. And um, do you see do you see a future for for these type of voluntary targets, or do you think that we need more of a kind of governmental or even even a market approach to these things? 
It depends on each sector, I guess, Chris, as well, and where they are on the journey. I think some sectors, it's very clear now in terms of the technology, the levers, the policies that are in place to enable their journey. But there's other sectors, you know, I've recently, over, over the last few weeks, have been working a lot on aviation, for instance. You know, it's much more challenging. But I, I think ultimately we will get much more to mandatory um, requirements and, and targets. Um, but we also have to understand where each sector is and you know the unique um, issues within a sector and also within regions. Um, you know, I hadn't talked too much about the Paris Agreement, but I think the thing that I really loved about the Paris Agreement, and after, what was it, 20 years of climate talks, we finally got to the Paris Agreement, was being able to look at country by country, what can they leverage in terms of their decarbonization levers to get us to net zero. And every country is different, regions are different and sectors are different and we have to be able to account for that. Obviously we want to get to mandatory but we need to think about the steps along the way to get there. If you could wave your magic wand and there was one... I wish. Yeah, one, so. <laughs> Can I have one please? <laughs> There's one piece of legislative change that you could make um, on either a kind of local or, or a global level. You know, what would, it, what would it be? That would just make your life easier in your day-to-day your -day job? I think, uh, well, I'm really excited, you know, you can hear from my accent, maybe people may be listening in, you know, so I, I'm from the US um, and I, I think I have to commend the UK government. I think there's a lot of work that we're doing and, and issues to address, but we were one of the first countries to mandate um, TCFD requirements and we'll see on sustainability disclosure requirements, but you know, we are seeing progress and, and that would be very beneficial to, to see that come to, to legislation. Um, and I, I think being able to have that transparency would be very helpful. So if I had my magic wand, I, I would be asking for more transparency, but with the caveat that I think, you know, what I hear from clients is we don't want so much disclosure that we don't have the sustainability specialist able to do their real day-to-day -day job, which is really driving change. Um, but I think where we can see more transparency, hopefully we can see more collaboration and being able to get the right momentum in place. I think um, an interesting kind of example of that is, is the worlds of carbon credits and you know, the European carbon markets, um, obviously making some change at the moment to try and, try and you know, get its transparency up and trying to get its accountability up and trying to get its um, uh, pricing and also expansion to different sectors. Exactly. Uh, do you see a role of, uh, for a, a, a wider kind of carbon markets, um, of like spreading it beyond Europe um, and maybe going to different sectors? So what's, what, what's your view of like car yeah. the, the price of carbon in general? Yeah, I, I think it's got to be part of the solution. And I, I would like to see it accelerated. I don't see carbon markets. I mean, there's been a lot of debate on either or. To me, it's an and that we should be working on carbon markets now to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. But obvi obviously, as we think about science-based targets, that we're not using carbon credits or other aspects inappropriately for being able to ensure that we actually get to, to net zero. Um, and like you say, I think integrity is going to be so important to, to be able to enable that. You know, so it's great to see what VCMI and others are, are doing to, to focus on the integrity and the, the disclosure of it. Um, and hopefully we will see that upscale because we're going to struggle to hit you know, 1.5 degrees if we don't throw everything that we possibly can at it. And so I think carbon markets will have a, a key role to play if we're going to be able to stay on that pathway. Yeah, that's a very optimistic way of looking at it. <laughs> like at 1.5 degrees, most people say, well, we, we, we'll, we'll miss out on two degrees, <laughs> you know, because I think we're currently on the path of 3.2 or something, something. We are, nice. yeah. Well, I guess that goes down to then, you know, looking at carbon credits and some of the technologies that may be required to keep us on that pathway. You know, so in the, in the bank, we're, you know, focusing a lot, not, you know, on hydrogen, green and, and blue to a certain extent as well, um, you know, and, and the role that would play in building out infrastructure where that may be required. So trying to keep it, you know, very broad view on technologies, but also looking at carbon capture and storage and the role that that may be required if we are going to be able to stay, you know, within the 1.5 degree target, either through more traditional CCS methods or also through direct air capture, you know, as we start to see more of those technologies advance as well. But um, certainly there are risks and challenges of, of being able to, to do that, but we're working hard to try to keep 1.5 alive as much as we can. Uh, so historically, Scotland has been driven as an energy power uh, by North Sea oil. 
um, you know, you know, exploitation of the North Sea oil started starting in the 80s, and um, you know the vast benefits that came from that. And then more recently, a transition into like you know, huge amounts of amounts of renewables. Um, where do you see um, the future? I think you've you've kind of you've nodded towards it um, in pre- previous answers. Where do you see the future of North Sea oil? Is it carbon capture and storage? Is it the you know the hydrogen North Sea? I, I think it will be a number of different technologies that could be enabled in the North Sea. So, I mean, offshore wind is, you know, the government's targeting, what, 50 gigawatts, you know, um, of offshore wind, um, which is tremendous. We've also seen, you know, doubling of targets for, for hydrogen and, and CCUS. Um, so I think there's a number of technologies where also, you know, there's been a lot of questions from our clients. Have you thought more about Tidal or, you know, or other technologies? Um, and I, I think it will be you know, potential spread across those technologies. Um, And I think what's really exciting for for Scotland is the importance of a just transition. Um, And that was part of the reason, you know, my previous role before joining the bank, um, you know, I looked at strategic planning for Wood Group, you know, and they were saying, we're a supply chain business, we're engineers, we want to be able to just, you know, find the solutions um, that are going to get us to net zero. And I think the only way we will really get to net zero is if we do have a just transition and thinking about those social elements, being able to reskill and redeploy, you know, individuals. And, you know, that may be earlier in the career. The more challenging part, and I've gone through this myself, is later on in your career having to switch roles. Um, and I hope the technologies that can enable net zero will also present a lot of opportunities, you know, for people that are working in the North Sea to be able to transition as well towards net zero. So um, given the, the requirement for uh, a just transition that you just mentioned and um, the, the, again, what you just mentioned, the, the enormous opportunities uh, that, that seem to be coming from, you know, from a renewable transition, um, where do you see the Scottish uh, economy moving and what are the benefits of the Scottish economy for, move, for having a renewable revolution, shall we call it? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you can look at the cost of doing nothing or the opportunities that the transition will present. And we know that financial flows will start to move away from more carbon intensive sectors to you know, lower carbon and net zero sectors. So the benefit you know, is a sustainable, resilient economy moving forward in, in the most you know, simplest sense. Um, but certainly if you look at some of the numbers, I mean, net zero transition you know, in the UK could cost up to 50 billion a year in terms of investments, as we've seen from the CCC in Scotland, will have a, a big chunk of that as, as well, and um, that needs to be invested. But certainly if you look at the numbers, we know that the benefits will outweigh the cost to the economy. And you know, we're sitting here in Scotland, but the other example I'd use is we've been doing a lot of work in the industrial heartlands across the UK. So that does include Aberdeen, you know, and, and here more in the central belt, you know, um, and some of our industrial heartlands here in Scotland, but also, you know, down down south. And if we want to really revive industry, we need to be able to green our industrial heartlands. And certainly we're looking a lot at that as well, because there'll be tremendous economic benefits of being able to do that and making sure that we're not offshoring any more of industry but being able to relocate it um, you know, in the macroeconomic environment to ensure that jobs creation and, and economic development continue to, to hopefully eventually thrive. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see what uh, the world has in store for us for the coming years. So um, just, uh, just grabbing that, that point on uh, kind of the, the macroeconomic sense of uh, the energy transition, um, do you see in a kind of philosophical sense that after a period of um, globalization followed by a quite a stern kind of reversal into deglobalization, people being more entrenched, America first and, 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 and whatever, do you see that the renewable energy um, transition, the energy transition as being potentially a, a, a force for greater globalization going forward? or the opposite where people can think well we want to hold on to our own energy as as there's some recent examples I think the benefit and you know really getting into where we are today with the Russian invasion in, in Ukraine and thinking about energy security the energy transition will be a massive benefit in in being able to diversify to become more energy efficient you know, to be able to resolve some of the challenges that we currently have at hand through a more diversified, lower carbon and eventually net zero, you know, energy supply. 
Um, and hopefully that will also help with globalization in the sense that we're never going to get to a point that we can be fully self-sufficient. When we think about supply chains, when we think about materials, when we think about benefits, interconnectors even, you know, for renewables, hopefully it, it creates more of an, uh, you know, uh, equitable type of, of world that we will eventually get to rather than political power being cent central to a few countries who hold the most resources. But as we know, things like solar uh, don't always, you know, there's more benefits of solar in some countries than others. There are materials and minerals that sit within some countries that we need access to to create these, you know, and, and deploy these net zero technologies. Hopefully that continues through that interdependency while removing the political pressures that we see in a very, um, you know, uh, simplistic energy model that we have at the moment. And hopefully we start to see much more of an integrated energy diversified model in the future as we aim towards net zero. So you have experience uh, of working in the Middle East and in uh, Saudi in uh, particular in the past? Yes, yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, how would you um, evaluate the Kingdom's position on sustainability today? Well, I, I think we have to think through some of the drivers for sustainability. And I remember before the Paris Agreement was signed, getting to go to a business summit with um, Cristiano Figueres and the oil minister at the time, uh, Ali Al-Nimi from, from Saudi. And, you know, we have to consider the position and, and what's driving that, that vision for sustainability. There are a lot of young people in Saudi, um, as in my own birth country, that are very passionate about climate change and wanting to see change. And I think the conundrum that we see is clearly a lot of the, the economic benefit that we see in Saudi right now is dependent on oil and gas. And that creates a number of conundrums and complexities. Um, but having worked for some Saudi companies in the past, I think what they understand is the climate impacts, the cost of doing nothing if they don't change, and that that has certainly come to bear. But as in, you know, a developing country, and I, I've seen this in working across Africa, Asia, and, and the Middle East, is there are different things that they have to address in terms of their development um, to be able to, to achieve net zero, but also recognizing they're gonna have to, to walk away from a lot of their natural resources that won't be part of the net zero future, as we here in the UK had to do many decades ago. And hopefully we won't see the same scarring that we've seen from the transition away from coal. I mean, it was absolutely the right thing to do. We all know that, but we still see scarring up and down the, the UK across the country um, and the transition that took place then. And I, I think one of the solutions we, we have to get to, and I, I'm sure Saudi is looking at this as well as South Africa, where I've worked previously, and, and Malaysia, and elsewhere, is how do we get on the right pathway to, pre to prevent that scarring, but recognizing we need to move very quick, um, and recognizing that climate change is already here, how do we best mitigate that? And every country will be slightly different on, on what levers they can pull to, to achieve that. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. um, but certainly in Saudi, there are political aspects at, at play as well that I, I won't be able to, to comment on. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's enormously interesting, enormously difficult area to be to be thinking about and discussing. But um, one thing that is kind of indisputable is that uh, UAE have now been nominated as a as a future host of COP of uh, COP twenty three. Yeah. Um, what role do you see the though, like the Middle Eastern countries um, playing in 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 that whole process? I think the really exciting thing about in the Middle East is thinking about the natural resources that they have at hand, um, sun, you know, so really thinking about solar, the new things that they can be able to leverage um, to be able to achieve net zero and the transition that they can undertake to, to achieve that. And I think UAE, it's been really exciting to, to see some of the work that's been done in thinking about solar, CSP as well, and other technologies that potentially will help them to, to aim towards net zero. Um, you have spent some time thinking about and um, researching the kind of the water energy nexus, yeah, and you know it's it, a very very interesting space. So maybe you could give us a little bit of like your, your thoughts on 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 the nexus and what are the advantages of looking at water energy as opposed to just energy on its own. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of interdependencies, and you know, some people may not realize between water and energy. So when we think about the increasing need of potentially desalination, so as we think about climate change, the risks of drought, uh, water scarcity, that means we're going to have increasing demands on things like desalination to make sure we have the water we need um, to be able to live, to, to be agriculture and so on. And desalination can be very energy intensive. We see a lot of the desalination plants we talked about earlier are sitting within the Middle East, um, you know, and a lot of energy is consumed um, to be able to keep those desalination plants up and running. And so you see this, this interdependency. Likewise, when we think about farming, irrigation, you know, water infrastructure, um, in some parts of the world it can be very energy intensive as well. So the conundrum is, you know, as we face more into climate change, Ironically, we may need more energy to be able to produce the water that we need. And so we need to think very carefully about that and how we can shift desalination to, to lower carbon energy technologies as well. Yeah, water is uh, going to be an enormously precious resource of the future and something that we're not spending enough time thinking about now when we're all obsessed with carbon. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. also and other, other greenhouse gases well, as well. And here in the UK, I mean, you know, as well, I mean, we're looking a lot at water here in the bank as well. You know, who would have thought, you know, earlier this year, I mean, we've seen dramatic impacts from, from climate change, both in terms of water scarcity, when we think about droughts that we've experienced here in the UK, but also about flooding events and making sure that we have substantial water infrastructure in place to be able to address that. I, I live on a hill here in Scotland and I, my husband and I picked that home because we thought it would be less exposed to, to flooding. But even around water infrastructure and being, you know, appropriate drains, you know, being able to, you know, deal with intense rainfall like we've never seen before with climate change. There are a number of aspects that water companies are having to think about, but also businesses when they think about how can they be much more efficient with the water that they use. Now, conscious for being slightly kind of um, European-centric here in our in our kind of conversation of the frames reference. Um, in your um, kind of, you know, vast experience of, of traveling the world, is it naive to be thinking that the, the, that the same conversations that we're having in European contracts are happening are happening around the world? Or what, what are the kind of the key differences that you see between Europe and elsewhere? Yeah, well, I think like we were saying, the Paris Agreement, the beauty of the Paris Agreement was being able for each country to provide their own targets um, and thinking about the levers and also the, the issues that they're addressing. And I always think back to, you talk about developing countries, remember COP26, it's hard to believe it's nearly a year ago now, but, you know, that heart-wrenching moment where, you know, Alex Sharma you know, is, is, is breaking down. India said they cannot commit to anything more ambitious. And, you know, I, I work a lot, um, you know, with Indian clients and colleagues through, through the bank. And, you know, I think they are trying to be ambitious, but they're also on a development curve, right? And part of the reason India wasn't able to commit to those targets is, is also because of the sustainable development goals. And so I, I think you know, particularly as we move forward on this macroeconomic environment that we're in, cost of living crisis is happening everywhere, coming out of COVID, looking at the Russian invasion, energy prices and so on, is being able to ensure that we look at sustainability through a holistic lens, not just about climate, which absolutely we need to be thinking about climate. It is the tragedy on the horizon, but we also need to think about the social implications because climate change is going to have tremendous impacts on the developing world who are still trying to get to a scale you know, of, of living standards that we're at. There's so much to be done on the sustainable development goals as well. And I think we have to keep that in mind. They're not going to look at things exactly as we do, but that's because they're, they're, they've got different you know, issues to, to address. And we have to take a holistic view on, on sustainability to be able to get to net zero. Of course, of course. Have you found in your, your travels uh, moments of, you know, inspiration or hope or you know, thought, oh, we'll all be okay because of this? What was it? Have you had a kind of light bulb moment or something that you'd you like to share? Yeah, well, actually, you know, I, I think you were going to ask me, um, you know, we were talking about finance earlier. I think the light bulb moment for me in joining finance, because, you know, I've worked as an engineer, I've worked as a market analyst, a consultant. And then here I go into a new area, you know, and working in finance. 
I think, um, you know, for people that have worked in energy, the, the light bulb for me in finance was they can de deploy capital in any sector that they want. And it would be so easy for finance to say, well, you're carbon intensive. I'm just going to move my money elsewhere, you know, or draw a line and say, this is my target and I'll just reallocate my portfolio. But I think what's really exciting I'm finding in finance is, you know, banks like the one I work for, you know, um, that we're really trying to make sure that it would be easy to walk away, but that we work with our clients to drive real economy transition impacts. And sometimes that will mean, you know, at some point, if you don't have a credible transition plan, that's what we're looking for, then capital will go elsewhere. But also, if companies are really working hard on the technologies, you know, to be able to decarbonize, I think the light bulb for me has been the easy solution is to draw a line and say, let's move. But the real solution that's going to drive real economy impact is when you can lean in. And, and as long as clients are really setting ambitious targets, investing in the technology that's required, then of course, we're there. We want to be, to be able to support. And I think that's what got me the light bulb, uh, you know, and how important finance can be in the role that it can play in net zero. Uh, you brought up uh, you know, Glasgow Cup um, before. Seems like we live in an entirely different world. Like, it does. Everything seems seems like we've changed utterly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what are your expectations of X Cup, which is just just around the corner? And what do you think? What, what's what, what's changed, and what can we expect? You know, looking. I know it's not your day job anymore, but if you, if you have a view, it'd be, be great. Yeah. If, uh, to, well, I think one of the key things at Cop you know, being in Egypt and, you know, there's been discussion for so long is on, you know, the balance of, you know, flows and thinking about, you know, emerging economies, developing economies, you know, being able to have the funds that they need um, to, to be climate resilient um, and, and be able to invest, you know, as we think about climate change and also, you know, mitigation. And I hope we will see more on that at COP. But the world is a very different place now. And that's the reason I guess I, you know, I keep going on about a holistic view on sustainability. You know, sustainability is about a number of issues and being able to, to think about the trade-offs, but also where we can, and it becomes much more challenging, but thinking about the co-benefits. So where it's an environmental benefit, but it's also a social benefit and being able to, to look at that holistically to find the solutions that will be required. Because we know, I mean, who would have thought inflation, you know, here is, is, not, is not great at the moment, 10, 10%, you know, we're talking about 13%. But we're seeing that, you know, these kind of challenges around the world as we come out of COVID. Um, and, you know, well, it's a different lens that we have to look at. But I hope, maybe being forever the optimist, but I hope that we see that net zero transition can be the solution you know, to, to be able to resolve some of these issues and to ensure that we have a sustainable, resilient economy here, but also globally, um, you know, in, in our future. We want, the, we, we want that future. We just need to now, it's a bit more tricky, is to think about that credible transition pathway to get us there. For sure. But on the other hand, there are, as you mentioned before, some strong um, headwinds that would suggest we should be driving towards that sustainable future more quickly because, well, we've got all sorts of international issues like Ukraine war, oil prices, um, to, uh, lack of uh, supply of our, our, our fossil fuels. And, and perhaps, you know, um, sometimes some of the greatest crises can also be the opportunity to innovate and collaborate like we've never done before. And perhaps this could be our moment if we see it. And when we think about energy security, the opportunities that a net zero energy base could, could present us. So that's my hope. Yeah. We shall see. <laughs> we shall Chris. see. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, is yeah. my hope. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah, wonderfully, you know, optimistic point to uh, to, to finish up on. But we've got just one more point which I to tend to ask to everyone. Um, if we were, because obviously we've got this podcast is being done in association with uh, London Business School Alumni Energy Club, and if you were talking to someone who was um, just leaving their their MBA or go to, we're thinking about a career transition. Um, or someone who's a you know, young person who wants to think about um, you know, where they want to go. 
Um, what advice would you give them about a career in, in sustainable finance? Yeah, I think where I've been driven and um, you know, hopefully this connects with a few MBA students is look for where you can have the greatest impact. Um, and you know, I've, I've tried to take where, you know, before I did my MBA, what I'd learned about the energy industry and being able to, to drive change. Um, and so when they're looking at sustainability, I mean, there's a number of different areas that you can work on and sustainability is really trying to understand where you could, you could have the greatest impact. And I think I would say be brave, you know. I, you know, maybe for MBA students, this is a bit of a turnoff, but I've, you know, at various points in my career, I've taken pay cuts, I've taken different types of jobs, but in the end, it's always benefited because when you see the impact that you can make, if you're really passionate about sustainability, the rest will take care of itself, right? Find what you're passionate about and where you can drive change. And yeah, that, that would be my one recommendation. Um, and, and hopefully they'll have a very successful career in, in following you know, where their heart takes them. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much, Dara. That was an absolute pleasure. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.